Jeremiah 34. I had so many things to tell you, and I didn't write them down. So I got nothing to tell you except what I have written down. That's the study here tonight. And if the Lord gives me any remembrances of anything else, I'll try to share them with you at the end of the service. Jeremiah 34. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. And you shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, You shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace, as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you. So they shall burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word says the Lord. Now let me give you a little bit of a rundown of where we're going from this point on. In chapters 34 through 39 of Jeremiah, we, we arrive at the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. And while not in chronological order, this whole passage from chapter 34 through 39... Uh, this whole section begins and ends with the last king of Judah, which is Zedekiah. His unfaithful and his unpredictable conduct in chapter 34, as we'll see in just a little bit, in the matter especially of freeing slaves and and then reneging on that commitment, uh, will be set in contrast to the faithful and steadfast commitment of a group of people named the Rechabites, whom we shall meet in the next chapter, and uh, we're do and we're living during the uh, time of Jehoiakim. So you'll notice that we're going to go from Zedekiah, who's the last king of Judah, and we're going to move backwards in time. So the book of Jeremiah is not written haphazardly, but uh, there's a reason why that uh, we're moving somewhat backwards as we go forward, and. Uh, that main reason is, as you'll see next week, the contrast between Zedekiah and the Rechabites, which we'll see again next time. But mentioning Jehoiakim moves us into chapter 36. When he hears and then burns the scroll on which Jeremiah had written his messages and his prophecies down of his first 20 years of ministry that being around the year 605 B.C. And then in chapters 37 through 39, we're brought back to Judah's final year. We'll see that 
King Zedekiah sought counsel from Jeremiah three times. And Jeremiah was incarcerated five times during Judah's final days. And then we make that long final circle back to the final siege and the fall of Jerusalem, including the destinies of Zedekiah and Jeremiah and a fellow that we'll meet later named Ebed-Melech and all in chapter 39. Well, that's the next six chapters in a nutshell. But as we continue on from this point, the book of Consolation, which we had labeled uh, upon chapters 30 to 33, that book of Consolation has ended here. The book of Consolation, of course, was the book of comfort. It was a book of, of uh, reminder to the people of Judah that God still was offering hope to them, that God was giving them hope. The future and the hope that we read in chapter 29, verse 11, that God had on His heart for His people. It's, it's the reminder of His restoration for the people. And usually when there's a reminder of that, with, with that comes an opportunity for repentance. An opportunity to say, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going to love you, but you're still going to have to go through these uh, trials and tribulations. You're going to have to go through this uh, captivity uh, unless you repent now. So there is always that opportunity for repentance. You know, God's giving us many times that opportunity and God's giving people who don't know Jesus today opportunities to bring their lives before, before Him so that they might, uh, that they might know Him. But there is going to come a time when that opportunity ends. And so, I do encourage you that if you've never prayed to receive Jesus as your Lord, if you've never uh, asked Him to forgive you of your sins, for Him to come into your life, to establish His throne in your heart, then you need to do that. You need to consider that. And so, the words of future hope for Israel, the book of consolation has ended and we now see Jerusalem once again facing the full force of Nebuchadnezzar's invading army. Now I want you to look at verse 1 one more time. Uh, verse 1 says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and all his army. Now that would be all of the army of the Chaldeans, all the army of the Babylonians. But then notice this, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion. So it's not just the Babylonian army. It's all the vassal states or vassal nations that they have overrun. They've uh, incorporated them into the Babylonian army. And then notice, and all the people of these lands fought against Jerusalem and all its cities. That's a tremendously large army, isn't it? I mean, the Babylonian army was large enough. But now they've incorporated all these other people. So they've come with a full force militarily against Jerusalem. They've already taken much of Judah. 
We'll, lo- we'll learn that there's a couple of, of uh, cities that have yet to be taken, but they're going to be taken as well. What's significant about this army is that it not only has you know all the troops that we mentioned and the armies of the surrounding people, but it paints a picture. To have all those armies surrounding Israel, it paints a picture of the entire Middle East attacking God's chosen people, reminding us of what is currently taking place in Israel. And when we look at what Israel is going to face in the near future, again, we have to consider how faithful God's Word is to tell us that they're going to face a future of having to deal with all the nations of the world against them. So already they're surrounded by armies that want to overrun them. How many times, and we talk about this often when we talk about prophecy, but how many times has God already protected the state of Israel today? How many times? Since 1948. 1956, 1967, 1973, and various other times, when though there may not have been wars, there were at least skirmishes, there have been attacks. During the first Gulf War, Saddam Hussein, uh, while he was fighting the U.S. troops that were coming up through Kuwait, what was he doing? He was sending missiles into Israel, Scud missiles. So the attacks continue. But God's faithful. Protect His people. But getting back to Jeremiah's time, how disheartening this had to be for the people of Judah and Jerusalem to see all of these armies stacked against them. There was one that we'll mention later that uh, they were hoping to have uh, uh, serve them and help them. An alliance that, of course, God told them, you don't need an alliance as I'm your God. But they wanted alliances with other nations anyway, and we'll see that that's, his, that's uh, Egypt. We'll talk about it later. But it, it, was the only, it was only a matter of time now that, that these troops are going to break through the walls. Little by little, they're building up the siege mounds against Jerusalem. Pretty soon, the walls are going to be broken down. And once that, that took place, the destruction would be so devastating that all that was left, and that all would be left for archaeologists later to find buried at that historic depth in Jerusalem, which they've already done, would be to find a layer of ash. There is a layer of ash underneath the walls of Jerusalem at the historic level of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city. So at this point, the Lord instructed the prophet to go to King Zedekiah with two warnings. What does the warning say? The warning says, listen, this is going to happen. So if the warning is coming, will you repent? Will you turn? Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 2, go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, thus says the Lord, behold, I will give this city into into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. And you shall not escape from his hand but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. It's interesting that he mentions eyes. We're going to talk about the eyes of Zedekiah in a little while and what uh, what, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to do to them. 
He says, Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, You shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace. Now, is there something wrong? Is there some inconsistency here with the Lord? Well, understand that whenever it says that a king would die in peace, that means simply that he wasn't going to die by the sword. He would not die by the sword. Therefore, he could join his fathers as others uh, uh, went before him. That's why it says, as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so they shall bring incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord. For I pronounce the word, says the Lord. I mentioned earlier that Zedekiah would seek counsel from Jeremiah a few times. Nonetheless, he kept turning away from God. But for whatever reason, God gave him that particular grace not to die by the sword. There was yet still a judgment upon Zedekiah. You see, God's hand of judgment was ready to fall on Jerusalem. It would be conquered. It would burn to the ground. Zedekiah's fate was sealed. He's not going to escape the coming judgment. In effect, this was another opportunity that the Lord is giving to the king to repent, to save the city, to save the temple from ruin, but he refused to listen. He'd be captured, taken as a prisoner to Babylon. And as I said, he wouldn't die by the sword, but he'd die in peace in Babylon, only because he didn't die by the sword. And he'd be honored, uh, he'd, uh, he'd be honored as a king in his death. But that's all he gets. I think about a lot of people in the, in, 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 on the earth today, a lot of people who want to receive honor and glory in this life. Sometimes God gives it to them, but that's all they get. You want to have honor and glory in this life? You can work toward it hard, you can get it, but that's as far as it goes. If we blow the trumpet for ourselves in this life, then whatever praise we get for it, that's all we get. Let's not seek the things of this world, or let's not seek the applause of this world, but let's seek the blessing of the Lord for obedience. Let's seek the blessing of the Lord for our obedience to Him. Well, Zedekiah had to first give an account of his treason before Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to look a little bit about Zedekiah here. And, you know, of course, we're going to keep meeting him. But I want you to turn back to chapter 32. Because here is again another uh, presentation by Jeremiah through, uh, well, from the Lord through Jeremiah to Zedekiah. If you remember this, for Zedekiah king of Judah had shut him up. In other words, uh, Jeremiah saying, Why do you prophesy and say thus says the Lord? Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon. So Zedekiah is upset with Jeremiah for giving this prophecy. But God gave it to him to give to the people and to him. And it says, He shall take it, and Zedekiah king of Judah shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Now, 
What happened at that time? Jeremiah was put into prison. So the Lord tells Jeremiah, go tell him again. That's what we see here in chapter 34. Turn over to 2 Kings chapter 25. We see historically now what takes place in this particular life of, of Zedekiah. And we'll run into this again. Reminders, folks. Always reminders of what happens when we don't obey God. When we disobey the Lord. And the consequences of it. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it, and they built a siege wall around, against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled at night by way of the gate between two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city. And the king went by way of the plain, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook him in the plain of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him, so they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. And then they killed, now notice this, they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. That's what happened to Zedekiah. Before his eyes are pulled out or taken out, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians make him see his own sons get killed. Then his eyes are taken out. What does that tell you? What is he going to remember? What is the last thing he's going to remember before he loses his eyesight? That image will be imprinted on his mind. He may not be able to see, but he sees the outcome of his sin. The consequences of sin. Now, it was a dangerous thing for Jeremiah to even consider delivering this message to Zedekiah again. But the great lesson that we need to learn is that obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is always better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams, the words of Samuel to whom? To Saul. Another king who was more inclined to do that which was on his own mind and heart than what God had in mind for him. The instructions had come from the Lord and, and Jeremiah was bound to deliver the message. You see, as a prophet, Jeremiah had to do what God told him to do. God's judgment was going to fall upon His own people because of their stubborn, hard-hearted rejection of the Lord and their terrible, wicked lifestyle. It was going to come. 
while every opportunity was given and exhausted for them to hear and to repent, the time had to come. And I want you to consider that all human beings, every human being will stand before the Lord one day and give an account of their behavior. Every human being. Even believers in Jesus Christ. The Scriptures tell us that Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ. Unbelievers are going to have to stand before the great white throne judgment of Almighty God. Every person, believer or unbeliever, will stand before God. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9-11 through 11. Paul says to the Corinthian church, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Stop and think about that statement. He says before he talks about the judgment, he says we should make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to God. Now I know that sometimes it's easier said than done, that we get up in the morning and we want to be well-pleasing to God, but there's an enemy that does everything he can to disrupt our desires for the Lord and and drive into our flesh some desire to go be you know go outside of the the lines as it were where God wants us to be. But notice therefore we make it our aim whether present or absent to be well pleasing to him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's speaking of believers. Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, for believers, understand this. The six things that Paul would have mentioned in the first letter that he sent to them, that in every life there are those things that we accumulate in life, Wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, precious jewels. Of all of those things, of course, you know, we'd have to say even wood, hay, and stubble are not bad things, but in light of what gold, silver, and precious jewels are, they can't stand up to the fire of purification. So when we are put through the fire of purification in this life, guess what? Wood, hay, and stubble are going to burn away. That's part of this judgment, you see. Get rid of the things that don't matter. Get rid of the things that don't really amount to anything. And leave what is precious. The gold, the silver, and the precious jewels. What happens to gold and silver and even precious stones when they're put through the fire? They are purified even more. And the, the impurities around them can now be whisked away. So it's a good thing then that we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But notice verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now that talks about a fear that we need to have of God. Not to treat God as if He's some, you know, buddy-buddy kind of, you know, camarada thing. You understand? Sorry I threw that word in there, but thought maybe some of you would understand what that means. God is high and holy. Always. Always. 
So we can't, we can't mess with, with who God is. God loves us. Praise the Lord. God has opened up the doors uh, of fellowship to us. We can come in and, 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 and appreciate His love and mercy and grace. But He's still God. So knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your consciences. Now, go to Revelation chapter 20, because I said, you know, that we as Christians will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What about the unbeliever? Listen to this, and you can read it all through Revelation chapter 20. We'll just read a portion of it. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Make sure that your name is written in the book of life. Because if your name's in the book of life, you shall live forever with God and Christ. What a great encouragement that is. But if we're messing around in this world, playing games with God, what assurance can there be? And so, consequences will come. In verse 6 of Jeremiah 34, getting back to that passage, then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem, when the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah. Now these two cities are about southwest of, of Jerusalem, about 15, Azekah about 50 miles from Jerusalem, Lachish uh, 30, about 30 miles from Jerusalem. It says, For only these fortified cities remained of the cities of Judah. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them. That every man should, be, uh, should set free his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. Now stop there and think for a moment. One of the reasons that we're going into captivity in the first place was because they had broken the law of the Sabbath year. In other words, they were supposed to let the, ran, the land rest for every seventh year, and they didn't. So they were being judged for that. That was one of the, the uh, things that they had become disobedient with God about. While dealing with Sabbath things as well, they were, we'll see here in just a moment, if they took Hebrew slaves for themselves, and that's Hebrews taking Hebrew slaves, they could do that according to the law, except that on the seventh year they were to set them free. Well, obviously they didn't do that either. So now Zedekiah makes a covenant with the people 
to proclaim liberty to these particular slaves that were still slaves during his reign. Verse 10, Now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set free his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and let them go. Now get this. Okay, you're free. Go. And verse 11 then happens. But afterward, and I have to believe it wasn't too soon after, or I should say not long afterward, they changed their minds. And made the male and female slaves return whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. And you could add the word again because that's what happened. So now things were getting were bad and they were getting worse. Things were already bad, but now they're going to get worse. Why? Well, I mentioned two fortified cities remained to be conquered, yet they were still holding out against the invaders. But that defiance would soon be over. The suffering from the siege in Jerusalem caused Zedekiah for the briefest of moments to lead the people to seek the Lord's favor in the hopes that he would deliver them from the Babylonians. So he committed the slaveholders to agree to free all the Hebrew slaves that were held in bondage. That's what we just read. Now, it should be noted that most Hebrews entered slavery on a voluntary basis due to some economic need that arose in their lives. It was usually debt or a need for work that forced Hebrews to sell their services to other Hebrews. So turn to Leviticus 25, and it's important for us to see this. Leviticus 25, verse 39. By the way, you can also see this uh, spoken. What's interesting is in Exodus 21, which is the chapter immediately following the giving of the Ten Commandments. In chapter 21, we see this particular law in Exodus given as well. But we'll start in Leviticus 25, verse 39. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them with rigor, but you shall fear your God. So he's saying, listen, because you should know that uh, you yourself had been slaves at one time, or your families and your, your, you know, your ancestors have been slaves at one time, don't make slaves of your own people. But if they need to work, then hire them as servants. Nonetheless, they were called slaves. Now, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12, it says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, notice, that in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply, supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine press, from what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this thing today. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you in your house, since he prospers with you, then you shall take an awl, an awl being like a big long pointed uh, 
thing to make holes with, you know, uh, tool. You shall take the awl, it says, and thrust it through his ear to the door, the doorpost of a house of the master or of the, uh, the one who owns the house. And he shall be your servant forever. What is left on the doorpost? Blood. In effect, you're saying, I become a part of this house. I become a bond servant. I am bound. Now, you know what they do after they made that hole? Of course, they put a, a ring in it, like an earring. But that earring was saying to everyone, I'm a bond slave of the person who lives in this house. We are like family. You see, that's why the disciples when, uh, and the apostles in writing the word of God in the New Testament would call themselves bond servants of Jesus Christ. Bond servants, you see. Not just slaves, but bond servants. We, because of love, we stay with Christ. And then it goes on to say this. Also to your female servant, do, uh, you shall do likewise. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you. For he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So God wants to bless the people if you'll do what he says. But you know what they did? What they, did? they didn't do it. They didn't do what God said. So they didn't keep the Sabbath year in the land. And they didn't honor the sixth year or the seventh year for the slaves. And so believing that they might secure God's favor by obeying this particular law, they initially showed mercy and they released the slaves. That is, Zedekiah, the princess, and the people who were slave owners during his time. But what caused their inconsistency before the Lord were their ulterior motives for freeing the slaves. You see, God knows the heart, so He knew that this was just not, not coming you know, to, to do this to honor God. There was an ulterior motive. Economically, there was an ulterior motive. There was a shortage of water. There was a shortage of, uh, short, shortage of food. And it was difficult then to feed and to care for so many slaves. So it became easier to, to say, well, you're free now. And it sounded spiritual, but it was because they didn't have to pay them any more money or, 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 or supply them what they needed, you know, as far as water and, and food. And then there was a military ulterior motive. Because the slaves could then be used to help defend the city. Slaves were not soldiers. But when set free, they would become citizens and they were then brought into the quote-unquote militia to, put, to defend the city of Jerusalem. So how often do people become inconsistent with their commitments due to economic, political, or military motives? How, how often can we become inconsistent in our lives as believers in Jesus Christ, as Christians? You see, we're learning a lesson here from Zedekiah. Because Zedekiah and the people made a commitment to obey the law of God, but their motives were really selfish. Can it possibly be that some people make a commitment to follow after Christ, but they actually have ulterior motives or they have selfish motives? Is that quite possible? I have actually heard this. I don't think it happens here. I hope and pray it doesn't. But I've often heard that some people will join a church just so that they can make contacts for business. They can pass out their business cards. 
become known in that particular community and hopefully gain business from it. Now, I hope that they go to church for the right reasons. But some haven't done that. So I know that you all have done it for the right reason. You come here to honor the Lord, to serve the Lord, to praise the Lord. And if we happen to help each other with the gifts that God has given us, praise the Lord. That's okay. But if it's only for the business, it's not okay. That's an inconsistency. And God will deal with it. You see, Paul said in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, let nothing be done. I want you to notice that word nothing. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We are to care for everyone with a kind of heart and mind as you go on reading in Philippians three here, or 2 here, it talks about the mind of Christ. In the next verse. That is the kind of mind that we need to have. The kind of heart that we need to have. That stays consistent to honor God and to honor the commitments that we make before God. Well, so then, getting back to our story, there came the Lord rebuking the people's inconsistency. Let's go on in verse 12 of Jeremiah 34. Therefore the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him, and when he has served you six years you shall let him go free from you. That's Exodus 21, uh, which is what the Lord is referring to. But your fathers did not obey me nor incline their ear. Then, now I want you to notice this word, then. Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight. Every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. But then, in the next verse, we see the word then again. But then, you turned around and profaned my name. And every one of you brought back his male and female slaves whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure and brought them back into subjection to be your male and female servants. I don't think this phrase uh, existed at the time, but God was saying to them, you're just Indian givers. Remember that phrase? How many of you remember? You know what an Indian giver is, you know. You give and then you take it right back, you know. You give them freedom, but then you take that freedom away. So what is God saying to them? He says, well, you did what was right. But the problem is you didn't stick with it. Here's the lesson. Don't go home without it. Do what is right. And then stick with it. Do what is right. And then stick with it. Because you see, Zedekiah... And the princes of Israel and of Judah and all the slave owners, they did what was right, but they didn't stick with it. They fell far short, they fell far short of what they should have done. 
My prayer is this. May we as Christians, no matter how tough, no matter how difficult things may get in the, th- in the things that we deal with in the dealings of this life, stick it out. Christians, stick it out. You know, at one point in his ministry, Jesus said some pretty difficult words. And many left him to follow him no more. You find that in, in, in John chapter 6. He said some, some, some very strong statements. He made strong statements that the people really, you know, they, they didn't understand what he was saying. They, they, they misunderstood what Jesus was saying about his body and his blood, about eating flesh and, and drinking blood. You know, he's not speaking of it literally as, as it were. But when all of that was said and done, many of them left and they didn't follow him any longer. And so Jesus asked his apostles if they wanted to go also. You read it in John 6, verse 67. Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? The twelve that had been with him, had been sticking it out all this time. Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I tell you, Peter should have gotten a gold star that day. Because once again, he makes that great confession that Jesus is Messiah. But it is at a point where he is confronted with that question that Jesus makes to his disciples. Do you also want to go? And it burdens my heart, folks, and it should burden you to ever hear of someone who has followed Christ, who has you know, been the servant of the Lord who has done things that, uh, you know, just blesses people. And then all of a sudden, you never hear of them again. And then when you finally do, you, you hear that they're gone. They're, they're away from the Lord, doing their own thing. Is it that easy just to get up and go? Jesus gave the out there for his own disciples. Do you want to go too? Peter said, to whom shall we go? You have the words. What he's saying is no one else does. You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know And you see, that is a tremendous statement that Peter makes. And I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, we have come to believe and to know. Not just to believe in my head, but to know in my heart that you are the Christ. You are Mashiach, the Son of the living God. When you know that, then your life has got to be lived consistently. For the Lord. 
And there's no room for inconsistencies. Do what is right and then stick with it. Do what is right no matter what you face. No matter what comes at you. No matter what the enemy throws at you. Do what is right and stick it out. Why? Because God alone and Christ alone has the words of eternal life. Do you remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Be steadfast. You know, that's, that's a nice way of saying, stick it out. Stick with it. Immovable. Don't move to the right or to the left. Hang in there. Besides, we know one thing. It's not by works of righteousness. It's not by our strength. It's not by our might. It's not by what we think we merit. We don't merit anything. It is by God Himself who said, I will be your strength. You give me yours strength, I'll give you mine. When you surrender and when you humble yourself before God, He gives you His strength. That's why Paul says what he says in 2 Corinthians 12. He talks about that fact that, you know, he's... When I'm weak then, I'm strong. The confession is, I, when I'm weak, when I... So when I surrender everything, then I take God's strength because He has applied it to me. Well, we've got to move on. A people who had a history of slavery should have shown more compassion for those who were enslaved in their day because of their hypocrisy and because of their disobedience. Zedekiah and the people would soon feel the impact of God's hand of judgment. Let's look at verse 17 now of our text in Jeremiah 34. Therefore thus says the Lord, You have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and every one to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you. He says, I'm going to give you liberty. For what? I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. You are now free to die by the sword, to die by pestilence, and to die by famine. What an ironic statement God makes. And I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead body shall be for meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. When you break a covenant with God, that splitting of, of, of the animal, you know, that's, that was significant. As a matter of fact, the word covenant in the Hebrew, berit, comes from the, the, the root word barach which we know to be the word for create. But it is literally used to mean cut. You cut a covenant. And when you walk through those pieces, 
You know what it's, it's saying? It says, if you don't keep this covenant, let this be you. Pretty heavy-duty covenant, isn't it? Verse 21, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes into the hands of the enemy, into the hand of those who seek their life, and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which has gone back from you. And behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to this city, which, which means that they had to go away for a little bit. I'll talk about it in a minute. They will fight against it. Uh, they cause them to return to the city. They will fight against it, take it, and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Judah desolation without inhabitant. So since the people had not really proclaimed freedom to the slaves, the Lord would proclaim freedom to the nation as a whole. He would set them free from His protective hand, and they would die at the hands of His agents of judgment, the Babylonians. Some of them would die by the sword. Others would die from plague and famine. In addition, they would be enslaved. They would reap what they have sown. You see, when you're not free in Christ, then you're bound to your sin. And you're bound to death. You need to be free in Christ so that you'll have the assurance. But if you're not free in Christ, what's going what's, you know, there's no guarantee, you see. What was said of Israel could be said of Judah in Hosea chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no bud, it shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure. That was about Israel. Same was going to happen to Judah. Now I mentioned that one of the ancient ways of ratifying a contract or a covenant was to sacrifice an animal by splitting it down the middle and then the two people involved in the contract would walk between the two halves of the animal. Now, this is what God did with Abraham when God made a contract with Abraham promising to give him the land of Canaan. God had Abraham prepare the sacrifice, split the animal, and then, walk, and, and then God himself walked between the parts. Do you know that Abraham did not walk between the parts? Only God. You know why? Because God alone is able to keep the covenant. And he did it for Abraham. Unconditional covenant with Abraham. Because God keeps the covenant. The covenant didn't even depend on Abraham. It's, it depended solely upon God. You can read it later in Genesis 15. It says God was the only one to walk between those two rows of animal parts. While Zedekiah had apparently made one of these types of covenants with a people making them promise to set their slaves free. Uh, you can go back to verse 8 about the promise. It was a serious agreement, in other words. They would suffer the very curse they had invoked. Why? Because their corpses, God said, would become food for the birds and the wild animals of the earth. That's verse 20. So in closing out the chapter in verse 21, God says, And I will give Zedekiah king of Judah and his princes into the hands of their enemies, into the hands of those who seek their life, into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which has gone back from you. Behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to the city. They will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Now the phrase in verse 21, which has gone back from you, 
implies that the Babylonian army withdrew from their siege temporarily. And the Babylonians at that point had to deal with that Egyptian army that was coming to offer relief to Judah because Zedekiah and, 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 and others before him had tried to set up an alliance with Egypt. So here comes Egypt to try to help out. But the Egyptians were soundly defeated and quickly defeated by the Babylonians. And so in the next verse we see that they did return to finish what they had begun. And yes, God brought about a devastating judgment upon the nation because of their wickedness. But let me say to you tonight before we close that God did not mean it for evil but to bring about good in their lives. You you would say, well, how could devastation like that be good for their lives? Well, it was to awaken them out of their spiritual sleep and to repent of their sins. Took them into captivity, gave them 70 years to taste the bitterness of captivity that they would cry out to God and say, God, forgive us. We repent of our sins. When 70 years is over, they will return to the land. And as I've said before, they learn their lessons in captivity. Listen, there are times when the Lord puts us in kind of a mini captivity. We, we're put into a position where we need to learn a lesson. When we've gone astray, when we've gone one direction or another, away from God. Well, when we look at the reunited Israel after the captivity, as a nation, they, they never transgressed into full-blown idolatry again. That was a good thing. And so, remember the words given by the Lord to Judah through Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29:11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. For us today, the lessons of consistency and overcoming inconsistency, the lessons of Standing before the Lord and and living our lives right before God still apply to us today. The lessons of, of putting aside selfish ambitions and humbling ourselves before God and before others can be learned from this particular chapter. How great the inconsistencies were To the extent that when given that final opportunity for repentance, it wasn't taken. But God already knew that. So what does God know about us? I hope and pray that he knows that we have desired to live our lives right before him. That we have prayed to receive Christ. That we desire 
we desire it in our lives to be born again of the Spirit of God so that we can have a new life and live it right before Him. And that even when we may face trials or tribulations or even the temptations of this world, greater is He that is in us than He that is in this world, we can overcome. As a matter of fact, Jesus said He wanted us to be overcomers. And how can we be overcomers? By trusting in the one who has overcome for us. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So let's live like overcomers. We're we're, we're not overcomers because of what we did. We are overcomers because of what Jesus did. But we need to live like overcomers. Don't be undercomers. Be overcomers. Let's pray.